The following podcast contains advertisements. If you prefer a podcast without advertisements, you can sign up for our ad-free version at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. You'll get rid of the ads and we'll be very grateful. We've taken the period that is actually the 30-year exception as being the rule. Actually, sort of in the 400-year perspective, we need to bracket those years out as the unusual ones when only a newspaper was really a license to print money. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lafayette Podcast, August 12th, 2021. We live in the disinformation age. The internet has revolutionized our information ecosystem and cause disruption totally unprecedented in human history. Democracy may not survive, just like it didn't survive the television, radio, telegram, and printing press before it, right? When it comes to talking about the internet, all too often history is either completely ignored, with bold claims about how nothing like this has ever happened before, or it's invoked with simple analogies to historical events without acknowledging their very different contexts. As usual, the real answer is more complicated. Talking about history can inform our understanding of the dilemmas we face today, but it rarely provides a clear answer one way or another to contemporary problems. This week on our Arbiters of Truth series on our online information ecosystem, I spoke to Heidi Twarek, an associate professor at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs and History at the University of British Columbia. In a recent essay, she made the case for how a nuanced view of history can better inform ongoing conversations around how to approach disinformation and misinformation. How do current discussions around disinformation leave out or misinterpret history? What's the difference between a useful historical comparison and a bad one? And why should policymakers care? It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 12th. With disinformation, the past isn't past. Heidi, thanks so much for coming on the show. To start off, because we're going to be talking about the role of history in studying the information environment and disinformation, I thought we might start by familiarizing listeners with your own work. You're a historian, you write about media and transatlantic relations, and you've written a book called News from Germany about how Germany sought to leverage communications technology as a tool of expanding power in the first half of the 20th century. Just tell us a little bit about your work. Yeah, so I basically wear two hats as a historian of communications and also who's some who uses that knowledge to intervene in public policy debates, particularly around platform regulation. So I really began as a historian looking at how and why it was that the Germans for the, the whole first half of the 20th century became really invested in new technologies, particularly wireless and, and radio, to try to control communications. But even beyond that, how they wanted to use those communications to change global geopolitics, economics, or, or cultural views about Germans. So that really sparked my interest in looking at what was happening in, in the present. And when I began working on this material, it was around the time of the Arab Spring. So I found myself in a complete disconnect from the rest of the world that was pretty optimistic about what new technologies could do. And here I was sitting in archives, uh, researching how new technologies could be weaponized in different kinds of ways. Um, so as I was working on this history, uh, increasingly, 
the present kept catching up with the history that I was writing, looking at all the ways that the technologies could be weaponized and different groups of people could have different interests. And so I became more and more in, invested in helping to translate this, this history in ways that could be useful for, for public policy. So I now really spend about half my time thinking about how to regulate social media platforms and think about that in, in ways that, that correspond with the actual historical record rather than making assumptions that the moment we're facing is so unprecedented that we, that we have to come up with completely new solutions. Um, whereas, in fact, there's really a lot that, that history can help us understand about um, the sorts of factors that are involved, how we can investigate them, and also even thinking about what policy solutions may or may not work out. Because actually, the, there are all sorts of interesting moments where a policy solution is, is suggested and people say it's unprecedented, but I actually have exact parallel cases in history <laughs> that I can bring to the table and explain this is how they worked out in the past. So that's really what my work tries to do, investigate this history really thoroughly as a historian, um, but also spend my time bringing that to bear in terms of how we talk about regulation. So we asked you on the show because of a, a essay that you wrote sort of on those themes with the Center for International Governance Innovation that's titled Disinformation, Its History. And this is sort of recapitulating some of the things that you just said, but in the essay you write, history is ubiquitous in our discussions around the internet and disinformation. And then you go on to write that assumptions about the history of disinformation are everywhere in policymaking. What do you mean by that? So I think there's there's a whole range of, of these different assumptions. One that, that I've mentioned, but I think is quite ubiquitous, is the claim that something is unprecedented. Because to claim that something is unprecedented, you're claiming that you know the history of it, and therefore that, that this thing has never happened before. So even those sorts of basic claims are, are actually claims about history. Um, but we also see all sorts of other claims about history, whether implicit or explicit. Um, some of them in, in using vocabulary that suggests analogies with, say, the Nazi period. That's obviously something that has become quite common. So these are the sorts of ways in which history is, is implicitly used all the time, whether it's comparisons to uh, fascist regimes or it's claiming that, that something is unprecedented. So those are just a couple of the ones that, that I've brought out. And these are ways in which policymakers and others often make use of history without really realizing that they're doing so. I want to draw out a little bit more sort of the difference between the kind of pop history that you're describing there and sort of the academic, rich, textured history that you offer in the essay as an alternative. And in the essay, you you call the former the sort of like pop flattened version of folk theory of history. I'd be interested just to hear you expand more on how you understand the difference between those two ways of understanding history and maybe where you see the dividing line between them. Like how easy is it in your mind to distinguish between good and bad uses of history in this context? Oh, it's a great question. I mean, I think it's one that in almost any walk of life, you'll find a historian sort of shaking their fist and saying, it's more complex than that, or things began earlier than you thought they did. But in these particular realms, I think there's there's a couple of ways. One is the sort of classic choice to fall back on an analogy with Nazism as the way you try to explain why a policy is, is urgent, right? Um, without actually really thinking through, because there's, there's serious work to be done. And obviously, I and many other scholars have done that in thinking through whether this moment does bear fascist elements or not is, is a real historical exercise that, that we can do. But it's one that requires sort of deeper level of thought than some of the comparisons that, that we see are actually really erroneous, right? So um, comparing something like Twitter to the Trump's use of Twitter to the Nazi regime is very problematic because Twitter is a 
privately owned company and <laughs> the Nazis controlled radio. So there are some sort of basic ways in which those analogies are sort of factually wrong. So I see that as the kind of stuff that, that can be a bit problematic because it really leads us astray from what historians can do, which is to, to think through comparisons and to we love to fight over them, but to do it on the basis of the actual historical record as it evolves. Um, and the other thing that, that obviously historians bring to bear is um, we're always going to archives and actually pulling out new understandings of the past, right? So hopefully my, my book showed there's actually a whole host of things that, that we genuinely didn't know about how the information environment functioned in the first half of the 20th century. And so what historians are, are bringing to the table is here's some of the stuff that, that we didn't know before. Here are some of the ways that we need to understand older transitions into newer technologies, and this can then help us um, feel more informed about the present. And I think we've started to see some policymakers and others turn a bit more towards those types of history, really looking at the history books that are based on archives, trying to bring out new arguments, and then think about how to translate them into policy. So I've been encouraged actually to see, honestly, a lot more of that over the last couple of years than when I first started getting involved in policy. I have to say this podcast is so often pessimistic that it's it's always nice to hear when someone says, you know, that things are actually getting better and that people are are developing, you know, a, a more nuanced understanding of these issues. So I wanted to dig in more on the this issue of sort of comparisons to early and mid 20th century Germany. And there's so much there. But I figured we we might as well just dive straight into the Nazi comparison. <laughs> so as you said, it's not maybe the most edifying of comparisons to make to sort of compare the Trump administration and Trump and his associates to the Nazis. And yet it's a comparison that is made often and in some cases made by historians themselves. So I guess two questions. One is, why do you think that comparison is so common, even among, you know, people who are academic historians? And why do you think it falls short? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that there are some real reasons why this, this comparison emerged. One is that coming out of actually the protests from the far right in Germany from around 2015 onwards, a lot of the Nazi vocabulary around the media was actually revived, right? So, so very far right demonstrations against immigration and so on from 2015 onwards in, in Germany would use terms like Lügenpresse, lying press, or Systempresse, which you could maybe roughly translate as mainstream media. And these terms did make their way across the Atlantic. So I think that there were reasons to bring up these kinds of analogies, but I think it's also because it's it's a way to try to demonstrate the gravity of a situation, right? It's it's how, it's like in Britain, how if one wants to talk about a, a really difficult moment and how everyone will get through it, you, you hearken back to the days of World War II and, and how, you know, Britain stood in World War II. There's a sort of vocabulary that you, that you use to try and scream out to people, this is a really serious moment, we need to take this serious. And I think that that's what comparisons to Nazism have become is, is a way of trying to make clear to people, this is a really serious moment, please take this seriously, this is not politics as usual. And so that's where I think a lot of that moment came from. Also, because of, as I said, this, this vocabulary that was actually quite similar and, and really had not been used in, in Germany in a, in a mainstream way since the Nazi period. Having said that, I think part of what then happened is a whole host of different people started using these analogies to fascism also as a way of sort of drawing attention to what they wanted to write about without really going into the, the deeper questions of what is particularly American about 
the rise of, of Donald Trump, or as some other historians have looked at, you know, what are actually the, the connections between what the Nazis did and the Americans? And as a scholar at Yale, a legal scholar, James Whitman, who's shown, for example, uh, the Nazis actually took a lot of inspiration around their race laws from the United States. So there are all sorts of ways in which thinking about fascism and thinking about fascism in America is extremely important, but it doesn't have to be a flat comparison between the Nazi era and the Trump era can be asking so much more interesting questions about what were actually the the connections between these two countries and their their fascist or neo-fascist movements. And it can also be asking about comparison in a serious way, which is something that the historians do do, is to ask what is and isn't comparable and, and how. So that's the kind of thing I think we can be perhaps more interested in is really thinking about you know, fascism, which is something that the historians have also fought over. How do we exactly define that? What are the features of it? And, and if there is some comparison to be had, what does it exactly look like? And so that's part of what I'm trying to push towards is to say if there's an analogy, we, we can't just be simplistic about it and throw away a sentence. We'd have to really push at it and see if it works. And there are some places where when you push at that analogy in the realm of communications, it, it doesn't necessarily work. So let's push then. You, you've written about, you know, the history of German media regulation in the Weimar Republic and earlier and what that can tell us about both Trump's use of social media and sort of the social media regulation policies that are being proposed. Can you spell that out for us more? Sort of give us a demonstration of the more you know, nuanced, textured comparison that you're arguing for. Yeah, so I think one of the one of the good examples here is is radio regulation. So in in the 1920s, uh, spoken radio is is completely new. So it obviously has to be regulated in all sorts of countries around the world, and in many countries there are you know new ministries and so on, or it's placed under the purview of an existing ministry to regulate. And and in Germany, it's it's placed under the purview of a man called um, Hans von Bredel who is trying to figure out how he can make this a, a democratic medium. So he thinks after the, the terrible years of World War One, people are so divided and distraught and exhausted. You need to use radio as this medium of uplift to, to bring people together. So it should be about entertainment and education, not too much news. And as the 1920s go on and the early 1930s, of course, politics still becomes ever more fraught in the Weimar Republic. So this man, Bredor, decides, well, you know, what, what we actually need to do is have more state control over content, more state supervision. So in effect, he wants to have more state supervision of content to try and protect democracy. So there are various radio reforms in 1926, 1932, that actually put more and more state supervision over content. And Bredo is really doing this with the idea that this will protect democracy because it will prevent there being too much politics that continues to divide. But the deep and terrible irony of this is, of course, when the Nazis come to power in January of 1933, the one element of communications that they have a decent amount of control over is the radio because of the way in which it's been regulated. And so come, you know, seven months later, after the Nazis have taken power in August of 1933, the propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, says at, at a at a conference to do with radio, says, you know, the, the way that the Nazis came to power and held it was through the airplane and the radio. And this quotation got bandied about quite a lot after Trump came to power. But what was misunderstood is that what Goebbels meant is the Nazis used the airplane as, as a symbol of Hitler flying around like a, a modern man to come to power. But that control over radio is part of how Goebbels at least believed that the Nazis consolidated their power during those first few months when the, the regime was still needing to, to really secure its footing. So I think this is one of the sort of examples of something that's, that's quite misunderstood, actually, that 
the best of intentions to maintain democracy and to create this state supervision of content to try and bolster a weakening democracy actually, ironically, ended up handing the Nazis some communication power. And so just to tease that out a little more, that's particularly ironic, and you've written about this in the current context where there's sort of a post-2016 reaction against a chaotic internet that you know, partially allowed Trump to come to power, perhaps, with politicians saying, you know, we need to regulate this more, we need to make social media companies, you know, crack down on extremist content, that kind of thing. And part of what you're saying is, if you want to make that Nazi analogy, you need to understand that government control over radio, over communications was part of how the Nazis at least understood themselves as having come to power. So it sort of cuts in the opposite direction. Yeah, exactly. And so that's not to say that we immediately have to go the libertarian route, but it's to say that the the proposal that government intervention is the lesson we should draw from Nazism would be a misrepresentation of the historical record, right? Where we're actually, depending upon the medium, uh, the Nazis gain control of them in different ways, right? Because obviously they, they gain control of newspapers through, through different mechanisms related to um, new laws around journalists and, and ownership laws and so on and so forth. But if we're really going to bring the question of how it is that the Nazis come to control the media environment and why the Weimar Republic fails into our contemporary conversations. We should do it on the basis of what actually happened, even if that might in some cases cut against our political instincts, right? And and what our political gut tells us that we want. If we're going to bring history into the conversation, we've just, we've got to do it on the basis of the actual facts of what happened. And sometimes, as I've said, that may cut against people's uh, political instincts. But I think the other thing that that particular example shows is that it's really important to have in mind the 10 to 15 year perspective, because Brito starts doing this in, in the early 1920s. And it's really only in 1933, that this, this turns around and, and comes to bite him. Um, and ironically, actually, he ends up being uh, briefly imprisoned by the Nazis because of his uh, principled stances. So he really does uh, suffer for his principles. But this, I think, is another reminder that often we're we're thinking about quite a a short-term game in in policy. But in this case, the groundwork is laid 10 years beforehand for something that in the end will, will help to hasten the fall of democracy in Germany. And one of the aspects of that comparison that I found really useful was how you tease out the line you can sort of draw, not a direct line, but there is a line between those early German radio regulations and NetzDG, which is a, a law that I think our listeners have heard a lot about, which is this uh, German law that requires large social media companies to remove certain posts within 24 hours after they're flagged, which has received a lot of criticism. And we've talked about some of it here for how it really sets an extremely limited time window for companies to decide whether or not they want to take something down, which arguably encourages platforms to sort of over-censor in order to avoid steep fines. So what can pre-war Germany tell us about NetzDG? in your view? Oh, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there are a couple of things that, that it can tell us, or there are a couple of things that are actually really important to bear in mind. Uh, one is that the NetzDG actually does put into place uh, 22 statutes of, of German speech law, which are technically being uh, adjudicated under that law, right? And some of them go all the way back to the, the 1870s, so to the to the German press law of 1874, um, which is under a, a semi-authoritarian, semi-democratic imperial Germany. And some of those like laws around blasphemy and so on, they, they had 
somewhat diminished into obscurity. They just weren't really being enforced that that frequently. And so it's funny that actually NetCG has actually revived a lot of speech law statutes that that weren't really being particularly thought about even within Germany. So there's an even longer lineage than than going back to Weimar Germany. But one of the other things I, I think this shows us is actually that there's a there's a longer-standing German way of trying to approach speech problems, which is to try and regulate them through law. So I, I wrote a, an academic article thinking about this um, earlier this year, which is to say this is a, a much longer German history of thinking that when you have speech problems or what you perceive to be speech problems, the way that you deal with them is through law, which isn't necessarily the, the first way that you, you have to deal with it as a democracy. But you see this happen in the Weimar Republic. There, there's a lot of concerns about content related to children, LGBTQ content, etc. And the idea that you need to protect um, women and children. And so there's a law in the mid-1920s called the, the Schmutz und Schundgesetz, or um, I guess you could call it the smut law, basically, to try and prevent certain types of quote-unquote smutty content being disseminated. So there are all sorts of various laws that are happening during the Weimar Republic to try to protect people from various forms of content. So I think that that longer historical perspective shows us is actually something that that German lawmakers have gone back to in successive German regimes to think that that law is the answer to speech problems without necessarily thinking about what are the the other broader ways that we could, A, try to attack these problems or, or B, think about solutions. I think this example is really useful because it it shows, you know, as we've been discussing, how history can kind of reshape our understandings of contemporary issues. I will say as someone who does not have a background in 20th century German history, NetzDG as a law made a lot more sense to me after reading your analysis of how it fits into a sort of German tradition of regulating speech and of understanding communications and the regulation of communications as a way to sort of project national power, whether hard or soft. But I want to return to the question I asked you earlier about sort of the difference between pop and serious or bad or good understandings of history. What's the difference between this analogy, in your view, and the less helpful analogies between, say, Weimar, Nazi Germany, and the Trump presidency? Because you could just as easily say, you know, ah, well, this, you know, here's this line that we can draw between this Weimar law and NetzDG. And this just shows that, you know, all speech regulations are doomed. (laughs) As you say, you know, sort of go go fully all the way to the libertarian point of view. Is Is the difference knowing more about the sort of the texture and the details of these things that we're drawing on? Or is it being more cautious in what conclusions we're drawing from these historical comparisons? So I think it's a it's a little bit of both. And, and I think it's sometimes also realizing that the the lessons can be a little bit more nuanced and more complex. So I, I can give you another example, which is that um, one thing I've been thinking a lot about looking at a broader history of, of attempts at, at speech regulation or um, regulation around these areas in general is that, that when we look at a whole host of different technologies from the post onwards, basically, um, we see that actually, despite many conflicts over it, it is possible to regulate around international technical standards, right? It's why we we have radio that functions around the world, satellite, TV, etc. And there's obviously lots of geopolitics that goes into that. But, it, but in general, it, it does end up working, uh, more or less. Um, whereas attempts to have global standards around content have generally not worked out. 
So these are some of the ways in which we could, could look at history, see the, the different kinds of technologies that have been introduced, the different kinds of fights around content standards, other sorts of things. And we can try to draw some of those more general conclusions. But that to me, it, it, that sounds like such a different conclusion than X regime is just like the Nazis. And therefore, we either should regulate all social media or we should regulate none of it, right? It's when you use an analogy and you come out with a very definitive statement that is a prediction of the future that you think is certain, that in general is a sign that perhaps you're you're using history fallaciously to try and make a, a policy forecast. Whereas the attempt to use history to just think very carefully about the possible unintended consequences of laws that you're introducing, which is what that radio example gives us. It does not foretell the future. It just gives us one sense of the potential unintended consequences. Or it can be something that, that, as with the example of why Germany turned to speech law, it can help to explain why governments act in the ways that they do. So these are the sorts of ways I think history can be useful. It's not to give you an immediate prediction of what definitely will happen. That's usually a sign that maybe something's going wrong with that, that attempt to use history, but rather a way for us to think through much more carefully what potentially could happen, what are the unintended consequences, and even to expand our imagination of what potentially is, is possible. Could you talk a little bit more about the sort of failed history of establishing uh, global standards of content? That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a couple of examples. Um, one of them is, is related to um, telegraph codes. So basically in the, in the mid 19th century, submarine telegraphy spreads, right? And it's very expensive to send these telegrams. Every word is, is incredibly expensive. At, at one point in, I think, the 1870s, if you wanted to send 10 words, that was basically the entire monthly wage of, of a worker in Britain, right? So, so one uh, way to try and decrease the cost was to have codes, so that you would just have a random string of letters and that was supposed to, that would then unfold to be a code. And for 70 years, there are then fights between a whole host of countries who want to establish one content code. So you can think of that as one sort of global standard for, for content. And it's, it's a very interesting battle that <laughs> one day we can go into more depth, but essentially um, it never really works out um, because there are so many fights around things like which syllables are pronounceable for every person around the world which types of words are acceptable. And there's, there's no way that all of these countries can come to any kind of agreement. And so there's never really one sort of global standard for, for content. So that's just, just one example of, of how these attempts don't end up working out. That is fascinating. And it, it reminds me a lot, not only of content moderation, but of the fights over what emojis will be entered into, into Unicode as sort of <laughs> shortcuts there, which maybe is a demonstration that there's, a, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, a little bit. And I think, you know, there's there's also examples from, um, and I write a lot about this in, in my book, right? One of the, the things that the Germans are really interested in trying to overturn is the very small number of, of news agencies that exist and supply most newspapers with their national and international news. And they have a cartel that, that lasts for 70 years from around 1870 all the way up until the outbreak of World War II. But they actually never have one agreement on the, the type of content that they want, right? So even though there's a, there's a cartel where these businesses are cooperating with each other, they're also constantly fighting about what sorts of content should be being put through and whether news agencies are actually providing the kind of content uh, that other news agencies want to see. So if we look at this history, we can see even within cartels, all sorts of constant fights around content. So I think it's it's useful to 
consider sort of the distinctions between those fights that you're talking about there and the fights that we're talking about today. Obviously, as you say, it's absolutely not a one-to-one, you know, this happened then and the same thing is happening now with no distinctions. And it's also not the case that the challenges that we're facing now in terms of content moderation online are new, which is exactly what the point of this podcast is. But how much of the current debates around content moderation are new? Like, to what extent, in your view, does the internet actually present a new problem? And in what ways does it, as opposed to a new variation on a problem that we've seen a million times before when a new technology emerges and there's this sort of rush and debate and fight over whether and how to regulate it? Yeah, I think there's a couple of ways in which this this does present something really quite new. Um, one is the the granularity of the information that we have about every single individual user, right? That's not something that, that we see with any of these other previous technologies. I mean, that that's really sort of something that's that's fundamentally quite, quite different. So the amount of data that we have about people, the users that you can reach, um, that sort of thing, that, that granularity, the ability to, to micro-target on that scale, right? Of course, every advert in a newspaper was always thinking about reaching a certain segment of the population, but the ability to do so on, on this level of data is, is something I think that that's really quite, that is quite unprecedented <laughs> to have that level of, of individual data. So I think that's that's one element of it. And, and another is, in a way, the, the number of things that the companies where we generally think about their content moderation are actually doing. Right. So so we think about something like YouTube is obviously embedded within the, the larger company of Google, for example. And that's quite different compared to something like news agencies of the past, which struggled to make money because the only thing that they did was collect and disseminate news. Whereas we're now seeing companies which are tremendously financially successful and continually expanding into uh, new realms, even beyond uh, content moderation. So I think that that's another element that that's quite different from the past. One other element that also has always stuck out to me is the sort of the flatness of mass communication that the internet allows, not meaning flatness in a negative sense, but more that, you know, everyone can talk to everyone, that it's, you know, with the radio, you go to a situation where a reporter can speak to anyone with a radio um, and sort of instantly communicate information. But now the person listening to the radio can, just to butcher the metaphor, sort of talk back and that i think is a big component of a lot of the fights we've seen where you know information from a doctor being interviewed about their expertise on say uh covid care is just as sort of valid from the point of view of twitter as someone who is just spouting off and doesn't know anything does that argument about the newness of the internet hold up to you or am i overstating things yeah i think it's an Interesting question, because I guess it, it depends on who we think of as, as the groups of people who are receiving that, right? Because there are plenty of groups of people who've been pretty skeptical about the expertise of those who appeared in news media in the past, right? So 
I mentioned in, in the piece that I wrote for, for CG, this, this problem of golden age nostalgia, right? The idea that uh, news media functioned wonderfully before the internet came along and, and ruined everything, which is actually, you know, a very, <laughs> a very flawed picture of, of what media were in the past. So I think there were lots of groups of people who tried to speak back to media or had great skepticism about it. It's just that that skepticism or the speaking back maybe occurred in smaller circles so that the, the expert themselves might not have been aware of it. But also one of the things that we see to, to pick up on the, the radio is that we do see how public policy really does determine what a technology comes to be, because actually the sort of origins of spoken radio were that there were a lot of amateurs, right? A lot of working class and other amateurs who were actually communicating with each other through what we, we now call ham radio. And it's really then um, World War One, particularly when, when militaries take over radio um, for obvious military reasons. And then after World War One, when it's governments who regulate how radio emerges, that we see a lot of those amateurs being pushed out. Um, so I think it's actually a wonderful example of how a technology and its uses are really determined by policy. And so there's there's all sorts of ways in which the way we use the internet now is, of course, also determined by policy. But the idea that amateurs could speak back at least momentarily existed with radio and is then shut down by the ways in which militaries and governments choose to regulate radio and to shut out those two-way or larger conversations that were happening between ham radio amateurs. Of course, many fewer than the billions who were on the internet, but, but it was still, at least for a brief period of time, something that did happen. I think your your framing of a sort of nostalgia for a imaginary golden age of communications is really interesting and something I've been thinking a lot about. I mean, it definitely seems that there absolutely is a sort of idea that, you know, at some point in the imagined past, everybody agreed on what facts were and that this sort of new informational chaos disrupted this perfect past. And also, you know, that this idea that sort of decentralizing content moderation will be able to save things, that it also has struck me that there's an element of sort of nostalgia, perhaps wrongly so, in that as well. You know, this idea that we can return to sort of the the early pastoral American way uh, and we, you know, sit in our villages and debate and that that's better than the sort of the nationalized conversation. But I wanted to to ask for more of your thoughts on sort of why that idea of a golden age is wrong. Can you sort of spell out what different fights over truth there have been during the period that people now sort of idealize as a golden age? Yeah, yeah. There's a great question. I, I wrote a piece with John Maxwell Hamilton, who's a professor at Louisiana State University a few years ago, much more delving into this, this golden age nostalgia, if anybody wants to check it out. Um, it's at Neiman Lab. But but one of the things that, that we point out is right, there's a lot of the golden age nostalgia is centered around, let's say, late 1940s to 1970s, when only a newspaper was basically a license to print money, right? And lots of regional newspapers, we would now think of them as, had foreign correspondence and all sorts of things that were incredibly expensive. Um, so often when people are talking about declines in revenues and so on and so forth, and you see what they're comparing to, it'll turn out that it's this period. But if you look at the history of news in a 400-year perspective, what you see is that those three decades are really the exception, not the rule. It is almost always extremely difficult to make money with newspapers. Um, we see all sorts of sensationalist news, um, fake news, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that's part of the golden age nostalgia is taking the wrong period as the baseline. So that's one of my problems with it is we've taken the period that is actually the 30-year exception as being the rule. Actually, sort of in the 400-year perspective, we need to bracket those years out as the unusual ones when 
only a newspaper was really a license to print money. So that's one problem with it. The other is that what is it a nostalgia for? What type of news? It's a nostalgia for a, a very particular kind of white, male, mostly male anyway, um, news person creating the news. And so now we exist in a world where many more voices are being heard, telling stories that we might not otherwise have heard. And so it's sometimes concerning if the idea of going back to the past means actually suppressing a lot of voices who are telling us really important stories and reporting in new and different and challenging ways that that we need to hear. So I think those are just a couple of the reasons why it's important for us to move away from this golden age nostalgia and instead to say, we're not going back to something which in any case never really existed. What we're doing is creating new ways of, of reporting news. And so we need to think then much more carefully about what that should look like for us in the 21st century. So I want to be a little bit of a devil's advocate here and ask sort of somewhat mischievously, what is really the danger in perpetuating that misunderstanding? Like to, to what extent does that misunderstanding actually drive policy or how things work? I guess to put it another way, you know, that kind of nostalgia drives historians crazy, as you say, but why should a non-historian care? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So one reason I think we should care is if we see policies that may intentionally or unintentionally be shutting out some of those voices, right, who are, who are challenging status quo. So you can think about um, some of the concerns from groups who are worried that many of the regulations to do with deleting content may end up over-deleting, for example, African-American voices, because that kind of vocabulary uh, may be put into word lists and so on and so forth. So I think that's some of the reason why we need to be careful is if the regulation is built on the assumptions that we need to go back to a world of quote-unquote civility, and that's modeled around a certain type of speech, which was created by certain types of people, we might unintentionally be regulating out uh, some of the voices who've really found uh, social media a place where they can uh, make themselves heard. Right? So that's one of my uh, concerns, that we need to be a little bit careful about regulating towards a past where actually news media were, were quite exclusive in who was actually able to, to make their voice heard. So let's then frame that in a positive way um, and sort of thinking more about what history can offer. So you you write in your essay, rather than seeing the last five years, so that's since 2016, as an anomaly, what happens when policymakers see this, meaning the informational crisis, as a historical problem that is here to stay? How do you understand the possibilities here? What does that open up? So I think that that opens up a, a whole host of conversations about building institutions, firstly, so, so a little bit less worrying about deleting certain pieces of content and more about how to create institutions where um, the different groups of people who want to use social media actually have a, a voice and a say in how it might be regulated. And in some of my uh, public policy work, I've suggested things like social media councils, but essentially I'm trying to find ways to, to bring in some of the voices that were perhaps marginalized in more traditional news media, but, but actually have found social media to be quite powerful. So I think that that's one way of doing it. The other is just, just to simply recognize that there is no silver bullet that there will not be one policy or one regulation that will suddenly give us an information environment that will look like policymakers want it to look. Um, so this will be an, an ongoing question as to what kind of regulation uh, we want to have, what it should look like, and that finally we need to be 
a little bit careful in thinking about the unintended consequences of what that regulation should be. So if we recognize there's no silver bullet, maybe we stop searching for that, that one piece of regulation that will do everything for us and rather think about many of the, the broader questions that even go beyond the speech environment. Because I guess the, the final thing that I would say is that we've got to be careful to avoid making communications the locus of all of our fears about our society. So some problems that we think are communication problems, maybe they're actually economic or political or health problems. And so making sure that we think about solutions in those arenas as well, rather than thinking that that one law around moderating content online is going to solve, for example, problems of extremism. And so just to tease that out a little more, then part of what history can offer perhaps is by really emphasizing, you know, as you say, these problems with speech are always, they're not just about speech, they're about history, culture, politics, the sort of particular contingencies of our current moment, and that we can see if we look more carefully at history, how all those things sort of weave together. Is that fair? Yeah, and I think one of the things that's really important is that that we can see, and I'll I'll take the, the German example to make it clear, is we see that there are times where politicians or um, business people come to believe that communications has a power that it may or may not actually exert. So what what I show at the beginning of my book is it's really only from around 1900 that the German politicians and industrialists come to believe that information and communications can really change geopolitics or even change the balance of German foreign trade. They don't necessarily care that much before the sort of 1890s turn of the 20th century. And then they come to invest and believe that communications holds a huge amount of power that it may or may not really possess. I mean, they don't actually have evidence that um, sending more information about Germany to Latin America will increase German exports, um, but they believe that it will. Um, So I think this is one of the other things that history can show us is there are moments where policymakers or business people come to believe communications exerts a certain power. um, And there are other moments where they are less interested in it. And we have to be careful to really dig down into those beliefs and see where are they coming from? Why are people believing this? Is it actually true that communications really asserts this kind of power? Or is it that um, fights about geopolitics are just happening through the lens of communications? And I think we could bring all of those questions to bear on the present as well. Is this asking too much from policymakers, though? I think, you know, by, by now we're years into this current sort of age of anxiety around the health of our information environment. And to some extent, you know, I'd argue that journalists have gotten better about writing about bad information. Some policymakers have gotten smarter about it. But at least in the U.S., a lot of the debate is still mired in misinterpretations, willful or otherwise, of, you know, what Section 230, for example, is and does. So is it realistic to expect that policymakers will have the sophistication to incorporate these more nuanced understandings of history into their work? Well, I think we should remain optimistic and keep pushing for it. It's certainly on on those of us who are historians to write about it in ways that are accessible, right? So to, to write the kind of pieces that at least I'm I'm trying to write so they're they're quicker to digest, they're they're easier to to pull together. And, and we have seen, you know, people in uh, think tanks as well picking this up in in certain ways. I mean there was a a policy paper done by by Rush Doshi, who of course is now um, working for the Biden administration, thinking about some lessons from communications history for the present. So we do see, I think, some examples where when well translated, it is actually informing 
how some policymakers are thinking about this. But but I have to say, I also see it as something that that is on the the academics themselves, like me, to think about how do we present this in in bite sized chunks and in ways that the policymakers can actually digest. Recognizing they're not going to read a three hundred page book, but they they might read a a thousand word, or one of their people in their office might read a three thousand word piece. And I should say, if any any of those historians want to publish on Lawfare, our door is open. <laughs> um, in all seriousness, I'm curious how you feel this message has been received within the academic community. I mean, as you say, there's definitely a corner of academia, maybe most of academia, that really is focused on putting out those 300-page books. Do you feel like the historians you speak to about this are kind of open to this idea of speaking more to a public audience becoming part of the policy debate? Or are you sort of swimming against the current there? I think there's more and more historians who are certainly interested in doing this and and some who are even, you know, becoming a part of working in think tanks themselves. So, I mean, even the, the fact that the Washington Post now has made by history that came, you know, a few years after the monkey cage, but but does exist is a sign that historians actually really do want to wade into these debates and make sure that we're really providing the kind of historical context that that you need to to understand. So I'd say that there's increasing interest from historians, not every historian, but actually a, a large number who are actually pretty invested in making sure that when people are making assertions about history, they they're doing it in in ways that actually accord with the historical record. So I'm actually pretty optimistic. I think different historians choose different ways of engaging. Some want to, to engage a, a different kind of public, which is fine, but there's certainly a, a really pretty decent crop of historians who are quite interested in engaging policymakers in, in different ways. So I, I foresee this being something that um, historians do keep wanting to do into the future. And you'd said earlier that you felt like policymakers at least had gotten better about thinking about history in a more nuanced way over the last few years. Can you say more about that? I'm, I'm always, you know, I always am trying to look on the bright side and yet conscious that uh, that desire for optimism can somehow uh, lead us astray. So I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on that. Yeah, sometimes I think I'm an, an optimist whose optimism is always tempered by reality. <laughs> so I think, you know, it, it, it's what I would say is that when I brief policymakers or speak to them about it and give them some historical examples that they are actually quite interested in trying to take that on board. There's not an immediate dismissal of that as a body of knowledge that isn't important, right? So once I I come to them and make the argument that there are actually some things here that are are quite useful, so you might want to think this through, um, that there's actually some receptivity. Now, whether that actually translates into them being more careful in the policies that they produce, Uh, that's hard to say. And I think there's not always success in that regard. But that would also be true of political science or economics, you know, any disciplinary knowledge or academic knowledge we bring to the table, whether it actually ends up being reflected in the final policy is subject to so many things uh, beyond our control. And, you know, particularly in the in the US context, I think it's it's tricky, because there are some policymakers who aren't as receptive to expert knowledge in in these regards. But I would say that many of the policymakers I've briefed my experience has generally been that they are receptive to hearing about this, but but I think perhaps even more so maybe than, than elected politicians, certainly the, the civil servants and, and bureaucrats working behind the scenes are, they are eager to make sure that they aren't the Hans Bredo of the 21st century, right? That they don't uh, unintentionally create the 
regulation that's supposed to protect democracy that actually undermines it, right? They, they want to know those stories and they want to make sure that they aren't that figure, that tragic figure of, of the 21st century. So that, that's the kind of thing where I think I'm, you know, pushing a little bit and, and trying to make a, a bit of headway just to give them another body of knowledge and, and hope that by the time there's a policy at the end, that, that some of that knowledge still remains. I wanted to close by giving you the opportunity to talk a little more about your idea of social media councils. What are those and how would they work in your view? Yeah, so it's basically just the idea that that often when we have these conversations around social media regulation, um, what we see is that it's a conversation between platforms and governments. If you think of, for example, the, the first iteration of the Christchurch call to action a couple of years ago was actually only signed by um, social media companies and governments. But actually what we need as, as part of these conversations, I think, is um, civil society or some of the groups like Article 19 who are really thinking about um, questions of, of freedom of expression. And it, it's important to have them as, as really having a seat at the table, which we haven't always seen in, in development of regulation. So the idea of a social media council would be that um, you would actually have a sort of standing institution where you would have regular meetings of those kinds of people to really debate issues that are coming up. So rather than saying um, this is one consultative process towards one piece of regulation, that it would actually be something that there would be continually meeting. So it would be a way to, to try and ensure that there's three corners of the triangle, right? So it's not just government and platforms, but that actually civil society really tries to have a say in what are the kinds of uh, research access that are required, which is obviously a big question at the moment, or um, even sort of questions around um, whether there should be AI advisory boards, something that companies have stumbled on in the past. So, so really, that's the kind of idea. And how exactly it would be implemented in different countries depends on the country itself. You know, in, in some places like Canada, you could think about having a government role in actually really creating this. So then in different countries, it could work in different fashions but really a kind of advisory council uh, in many ways, because it would not be a silver bullet to many, many problems that we see with um, social media regulation, but it would at least try to solve that one that too often these regulations have between platforms and governments without regard for civil society representation. All right, let's leave it there. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Arbors of Truth. The Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright, and our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.